There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Chapter 15, if you can, please stand when you get that. For Samuel chapter 15, go down to verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, and sacrificed to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is the iniquity and idolatry. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag handed him cautiously. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We have had such a good time here already of worshiping you, Lord, of fellowshipping with the saints. And now we turn to your word, Father. We pray that our hearts would be fertile soil today. And as like Connie prayed, that we would leave here differently than what we came in here, Lord. For we need you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Mother was telling about her six-year-old daughter, Lori, who was studying 1 Samuel 15:22 for her Bible memory verse, which, of course, is, To obey is better than sacrifice. One day, Lori observed her three-year-old sister, Christy, being disobedient. So she immediately took her sister aside and sternly admonished her, Christy, if you don't obey, you will be sacrificed. Now, that wasn't quite what her memory verse said, but then again, it wasn't all that far off. 
In our story today, we find that King Saul had not obeyed God's commands. And because of that, he sacrificed his entire kingdom. He sacrificed his once close relationship to Samuel. And he sacrificed his relationship with God. This is a very foreboding and dark text that we're looking at this morning. You won't find today's account in the children's precious book of Little Lamb Promises. And then what happened, Daddy? Well, honey, then Samuel took a sword and hacked King Agag into little itty-bitty pieces. Now you sleep good, sweetie. That kid would be in therapy for years. Look at chapter 15, verse 20 with me. And Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Did you notice a little new piece of information that Saul slipped there in verse 20? He says, I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. Up until now, the interrogation had been about the animal. Samuel had said nothing about Agag. But presumably, Saul was well aware that Agag's presence could not be hidden for much longer. He therefore took the initiative and presented the information with the best possible spin. He slipped it between the assertion of his obedience, I have obeyed, and his claim to have destroyed the Amalekites. Literally, he said, I have fulfilled the word of the Lord, which is the exact thing God had told Samuel the very night before that Saul had not done. No matter how Saul wants to spin it, he has been disobedient. Let me bring it down to us a little bit more. Ladies, what if your husband told you that he was mostly faithful to you? But here's the thing. 99.9% obedience is still disobedience. Let me ask your wives a question. If your husband came home from the office party and told you that five women hit on him, but he only made out with one of them, would you consider that being faithful to you? No way. You would lay hands on him, and not in the praying way either. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Now, we know that Samuel was a Levite and a prophet, so he certainly wasn't criticizing the Jewish sacrificial system. The Lord, through Moses, had established the Jewish worship, and it was right for the people to bring their sacrifices to the Lord. This was his appointed way of worship at that time. But the worshipers had to come to the Lord with submissive hearts and genuine faith, or their sacrifices would be in vain. When David was in the wilderness and away from the priests and the sanctuary of God, he knew that God would still accept worship if it came from his heart. That is why he prayed in Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be set before you as an incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Christian worship today must be more than simply going through liturgy. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. And serving God acceptably involves doing the will of God in the right way and at the right time and for the right motives. And so the prophet's going to reject all of Saul's lies 
and explain why God couldn't accept the animals as legitimate sacrifices. You see, the Lord wants living obedience from our hearts, not dead animals on an altar. The sacrifice he desires is a broken and a contrite heart. Sacrifice without obedience is only hypocrisy and empty religious ritual. Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The problem is the default nature of humans is to mix compromise with obedience. For example, is it okay to modify the truth to avoid some unpleasant circumstance at home? Now, initially, most will say that that is not okay. All husbands can identify with this one. Your wife says to you, Honey, does this dress make me look fat? What do you do, my brothers? Do you modify the truth to avoid an unpleasant night on the couch? Or do you speak the truth in love? I don't know about you, but I have a default natural response. I call it the blank stare. That's what happens when you're afraid to move and you just stand there praying for the rapture. But we have to first admit that we can't even trust our very own hearts. Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this, If only there were evil, evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Some time ago, I ran across a wedding prayer that illustrates how subtly we can substitute religious talk for true obedience. This is a girl praying on her wedding day. Dear God, I can hardly believe this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately with all the rush of getting ready for today, and I'm sorry. I guess, too, that I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about, this, about all this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much, what else can I do? I just couldn't give him up. Oh, you must save him some way, somehow. You know how much I pray for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. I've tried not to appear too religious, I know, but that's because I don't want to scare him off. But he's not totally against you or anything. I can't understand why he hasn't responded. Oh, if he were only a Christian. Dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him and I want to be his wife. So please be with us and please don't spoil my wedding day. Now that sounds like a sincere, earnest prayer, does it not? But if it is stripped from its fine, pious language, it is really saying something like this. Dear Father, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my way at all costs. For I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good God and deny yourself and move off your throne and let me take over. If you don't like this marriage, then all I ask is that you bite your tongue and don't say or do anything that will spoil my plans, but let me enjoy myself. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. That hits a little bit too close to home, doesn't it? Verse 23 for rebellion is as a sin of divination or witchcraft. 
Now, the margin of your Bible likely renders the word witchcraft as that, divination. Rebellion is as witchcraft because when I rebel, I'm basically saying, Lord, I will divine, I will determine what is best for me. I will be the divinity in my life. Now, here's the problem with our rebellion. We see it as being just human and doing our own thing, but God views it as witchcraft. The interesting thing is that Saul has now spurned the authority of God, and because of that, his boundaries that he once had are all gone. Soon we're going to read about a guy named David who rises in the eyes of Israel and appears to be a challenge to the glory of Saul. What will Saul try to do to David? He will attempt to murder him because he now has no problem with murder. And at the end of Saul's life, he's even going to consult a witch for counsel. Whenever you no longer have obedience and when you tear down all the boundaries to your behavior, that sin is going to work its way out ultimately in rebellion and all that rebellion brings. Now, I am told that because of evolution, I'm getting better and better. And one day, given enough time to evolve, I could look like Logan over there. But really, the scripture proves just the opposite. What happens when a people group no longer honors and worships God? I'll give you a hint. They become that God, at least in their own minds. Listen to what I call the devolution of the species in Romans chapter 1. It reads, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Did you see that? They exchanged the glory of God for an image in the form of a man, and then of birds, and then of four-footed animals, until finally you end up ascribing glory to crawling creatures. So instead of ascension, we find mankind descending in its worship whenever God is removed from that equation. Verse 24, And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The problem here is simple. Saul feared the people more than he feared God. Do you remember when we studied 1 Samuel 12:14? It said this, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Fear the Lord. But Saul said he feared the people. Obey his voice. But Saul said he obeyed the people's voice. Notice the low motivation of this man. He said he was afraid of the people, so he obeyed their wishes. He wanted to please everyone. Even in his confession, Saul made excuses. 
He should have simply said, I've sinned, I've done wrong, period. Instead, he added, because. If I begin to justify why I have a sinful tendency, I'm in trouble whenever I add the word because. I need to simply say, I sinned. Because as soon as we add the words because, we've moved from repentance to making excuses. Look at verse 27, please. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. This, of course, is speaking of David. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. We see that Saul is persistent in his request to the the degree that as Samuel turns to leave, he grabs his robe as if to say, Don't you dare walk away from me and turn your back on me. I'm the king, remember? And by the way, whenever God uses godly people to rebuke the government, there will always be a blowback from that government. Keep watching in our own government as it lends more and more support to all that is ungodly. And they have the ability to do that because they control the media, which will always make the secular viewpoint look noble and enlightened. While they portray Christians as hate mongers who still study and obey a book written in the Bronze Age. Now, in verse 29, we read that the Lord is not a man that he should not lie or change his mind. Your version may even say repent. Now, the word repent can mean to change direction, or it can mean, as it does 41 times in the Old Testament, to regret. God is simply regretting that the people had demanded a king. In Deuteronomy 17:15, provision had been made for a king, But the people got ahead of God because the king he intended for them wasn't Saul, but was David. Perhaps that's a word for some of us this morning. Psalm 37.4 tells us, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We cling to this verse as well we should, but not apart from its context. For three verses later, David tells us to wait patiently on the Lord. God has a plan for each of our lives, and no small part of that requires patience. If we get ahead of God, we end up with Ishmael instead of Isaac, with Saul instead of David. Our text reads, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. In theological terms, that is referred to as the immutability of God. Now, something that is mutable is subject to change in any degree. Think of something that mutates. That's the same root word. But to be immutable means to be unchanging and unchangeable. Here's a working definition. God does not and cannot change in his basic character. Nothing that God has ever said about himself will be modified. Nothing the inspired prophets and apostles have said about him will be rescinded. His immutability guarantees this. Here's another definition that captures the depth and the beauty of God's unchanging character. All that God is, he has always been. And all that he has been and is, he will ever be. You can also use the word always to express this truth about God. God is always wise, always sovereign, always faithful, 
always just, always holy, and always loving. Whatever God is, he always is. There are no sometimes attributes concerning God. All of his attributes are always attributes. He always is what he is. Now, God will often change his actions. For example, he will say to Nineveh, I'm going to destroy you in 40 days. But they repent, and so God changes his action to mercy. But his character does not change. He tells us if we repent, he will change in his dealings with us because of that repentance. Now, we have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us should be greatly encouraged in this. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Because God's promises, God's purposes, and God's personality never changes, God's people can change. It's great that God never changes, but wouldn't it be awful if you and I can never change? But it is precisely because he is immutable that you and I can experience the hope of lasting change from the inside out. The hope of change is an anchor for our soul. That implies at least two things. One, our soul is prone to drift. How does the song go? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. An anchor is a steadying force and prevents drifting in the choppy seas of our life. It keeps us from sliding away and helps us not to be swept away by the winds of temptation. An anchor is like an immovable rock that we can always hold on to. A story is told of a shipwrecked sailor who clung to a rock until the tide went down. After he was able to make it to safety, a friend asked a question. Didn't you shake with fear when you were hanging onto the rock? The sailor simply smiled and said, Yes, I shook, but the rock didn't. Life and its uncertainties may shake us, but God, who is the rock of ages, will never move. Look at verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. In his last words in this chapter, Saul acknowledges his failure once again, but he does not seek pardon. Instead, he just seeks dignity among the people. Even in his final confession, Saul's inadequacy is evident. Two little personal pronouns betray him in verse 30. My people and your God. For the sake of his own glory, he wanted to bow with Samuel before Samuel's God and before the elders of Saul's people. He was obviously much more concerned about his reputation with the people than about his character with God. And that that is not an attitude of a man who is truly broken because of sin. But this was just another indication that he was more interested in being popular with the people than in pleasing the Lord. For reasons that are not explained, Samuel relented from his refusal to go back with Saul in verse 26. It says, So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul Saul bowed before the Lord. Look, if we truly repent, we will want to put our sins behind us. When the hard-drinking Sam Houston decided to get water baptized, 
The preacher got him in the creek and wanting to encourage old Sam, he said, Sam, all your sins have been washed off of you and now they float away down that river. Sam Houston paused for a moment, stared down at the water, and then said loud enough for everyone to hear, Dear God, please help those fish. Now, I do not believe Saul's repentance is genuine. Look how he's covering up his sin. He says to Samuel, Let us go through the forms of worship together and not let the people know that I have been rejected. He wanted to repent, but he did not want to have to pay the penalty for his disobedience. It was seen that he was a hypocrite to the very end. We must also ask ourselves, when is repentance truly biblical repentance? This is James 4.9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. True repentance isn't just being sad over what we have done. When I used to drink, I repented every Saturday morning because most of my insides have been thrown up on the outside. I was sorry, but I wasn't sorry about drinking. I was sorry that I felt sick. Now, there's a big difference in that. We're also going to see that David will sin. In fact, in many ways, David's sin will put Saul's sin to shame. But when David did sin, he was pierced with remorse and felt undressed in the presence of God. There were no excuses or any attempt at manipulation. It was simply Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Also, the best time to repent is immediately after our infraction. A great example of this can be found in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You know him, right? He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Here's a phrase I want us to pay special attention to. In verse 8, just before Zacchaeus announced his restitution plan, he said this, Here and now I give. Let me say that again. Here and now. I'm not going to wait until later. I'm not going to put this off. But here and now, I'm going to be generous and pay back all those people that I cheated. That should be our attitude concerning repentance. All right, but if Saul didn't truly repent, then why does it say there that Saul worshipped the Lord? That's simple. Just ask Pastor John after service. Now listen, just because it says a person worships doesn't mean that the Lord accepted that worship. Now let me give us three steps to consider in regards to all this. One External devotion is no substitute for internal submission. Two, remorse is no substitute for repentance. And three, human applause is no substitute for divine approval. Verse 32, Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag the king of the Malachites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. One version says, it says Agag came to Samuel cheerfully. 
He was thinking, surely time has healed all wounds. I bet in a few minutes we'll be roasting marshmallows and singing Kumbaya. Can't we all get along? Agag asked that. Just as our flesh will always try to strike a bargain with us. But Samuel dealt a death blow to this representative of the flesh, and so must we. Back in the 1960s, there was a man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. If you know world history, you know that this man, apart from Hitler, is held as being most responsible for the Holocaust of the Jews. And like lots of Nazi war criminals, he fled to Central and South America, where they were tried to blend back into society incognito. But a group of Jewish bounty hunters stayed on Eichmann's trail 15 years after the Holocaust. Eventually, they found him working in a factory in Bolivia. He now had a new family and a new name. The thing is, they didn't just want to assassinate him. They wanted him brought to justice before the whole world. So they captured him and brought him back to Jerusalem where he was tried, hung, and then incinerated in the ovens that he had used to incinerate the Jews. His ashes were then sprinkled on the Mediterranean Sea so there could be no funeral or memorial to his life. He would be like those in the Old Testament where it is said that God would wipe them like a dish or sweep them like dung from the threshing floor. But just before his execution, the Israeli prime minister received a message from Eichmann's wife asking that they would show mercy to him. The prime minister contacted her and gave her just one verse from the Bible. It was verse 33. As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. In other words, this is divine judgment that your husband has to undergo. Matthew Henry said, One of the biggest mistakes people make is to believe that just because God hasn't judged me, that means that he won't. The words before the Lord reminds us, however, that here again we are seeing the holy and righteous judgment of God Almighty, and it's fully deserved, as Samuel's words emphasizes. Verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So this is the end of the relationship, really, between Saul and Samuel. I imagine Samuel waving that bony long hand and saying to Saul, It's been real. So adios, arriva dirci, and chili con carne. Our hearts go out to Samuel, who certainly suffered much because of the people and the king that they so desperately wanted. When the kingdom was introduced to Israel, Samuel was replaced by a leader who was inferior to him in every way. Samuel did his best to advise the king and strengthen the kingdom, but Saul continually insisted on having his own way. Each time Saul was assigned to a task, he failed, and when he was confronted, he always lied and blamed others. In a very important sense now, Saul's reign has ended. The prophet departed from the king for good, just as the king had turned away from following the Lord. And we are right to see Saul's reign as a tragedy, to the degree that God, it says, regretted the whole thing. Now these are some astonishing words because we have already heard God say in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. And this chapter will close with the words, And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
Now, in closing, this is one of those places where people claim to see an obvious contradiction in the text of the Bible. The truth is, however, that both statements do not contradict each other in any way. God did regret that he made Saul king. Saul's disobedience grieved him. But that does not mean that God had lied or that he had changed his intentions in verse 29. In the bigger picture, all that has happened is exactly what God said would happen in 1 Samuel 12:15, where it said, If the king and the people did not obey the voice of the Lord, then God would do exactly what he said he would do, depending on what they had done. Or we could simply say, Let God be true and every man a liar. Lord, we are so thankful that you are immutable. It says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, Lord, we know that we can count on you and your mercy and your grace. And I just pray, Father, that you would let us experience that in a fresh and a new way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.